0: Good morning and greetings in Christ's name to each one here this morning. I want to welcome each one here and just God bless you, each one, for being here this morning and for the desire to, to look into God's Word, to, um, to worship together and to, um, to grow together together This morning I've titled the message, A Maturing Church Body, and you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want to look at the first half of the chapter this morning, the first 16 verses. A maturing church body. We are a... A relatively a, a, a fairly new congregation, and we are a fairly young in age congregation, and we think of of a young person maturing physically, and there's um, there's growth that happens, and it's. It's good to see a young person um, maturing and um, becoming a young man, a young woman. It's also a blessing to see a Christian maturing. And that is a, I'm not sure if I want to call it a process, but something that happens Um, continues to happen. Uh, We don't come to a place of maturity. Look at some of the older ones here, see if they agree with me, but we don't come to a place of maturity where we're done and we're we're ready to quit maturing. We we continue that. And as I as I think of that, As a church body, there is maturing, continued growth that needs to happen, and I would venture to say that it's also the same with a church body as it is individually, that the maturing needs to continue happening. Um, Even if the church has been established for 50, 75, 100 years, whatever it may be, um, because of the changes in, in life and culture, that the, the maturing needs to continue happening. In Ephesians, uh, well, as we think of the body, uh, and we're gonna, we're going to see a little bit about the body, working together here, but I am sometimes... Uh, intrigued when I stop and think about the human body, and as you see a person, uh, just just their movements and the the smoothness which with a person can move and and function, and, and it's it's a wonder. Um, now you're all watching me up here, seeing how I'm moving. <laughs> I'll make myself nervous here, but. Um, and how it actually works, you know, it's it's nothing like a machine where you have a motor that's making it happen. And um, I I I really don't understand it. How the human body functions and works, it's a wonder. But the human body functions as one. You know, I have a hand here, and I have. I have a foot down on the floor, in my shoe, and they're they're two different parts of my body, but they're both very much a part of my one body. And as I consider the church, the church is as a body to be functioning as one, and we're going to see that word "one" coming through here. Um, the the thrust of the message is, is uh, unity in the brotherhood. I'm going to read the first 16 verses here, and then we'll uh, proceed from there. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye're called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working, in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Paul starts out here, as I believe in chapter 3 as well, he did, speaking of himself, introducing himself as the prisoner of the Lord. And I, uh, just uh, in our devotional this morning, um, oh, I should have picked that out there. I did. I'm, I'm not finding the place right now. Oh, okay, yeah, here in, in 1 Peter 4, talked about uh, verse 13 there. Uh, verse 12, the fiery trials. Um, and then verse 13, Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye for the spirit of glory and of God resteth on upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. That verse there kind of jumped out at me. Um, not to, that we wouldn't suffer as a sinner, murderer, thief, or an evildoer. Paul here was suffering for the sake of Christ. He was a prisoner because of what he was doing for Christ he uses the word vocation, um, a calling to walk worthy of the vocation that we are called with. Now Paul was in prisoner in prison for Christ. What about us and what we are called to? Whether it's our our daily occupation. Or our calling in the home, or the other things, uh, various things that we can be called to. Is our identity in our calling in the Lord? Even as Paul's was as a prisoner here, in the Lord. Are you a carpenter in the Lord, or a mechanic? in the Lord, or a homemaker in the Lord, whatever God has called you to be. He says, therefore, and he's calling us to walk worthy. In some of the previous chapters here, um, we've looked at what Christ has done, uh, has chosen us the grace by which we have been saved, and His calling us to Himself, calling us out of a life of being dead and trespasses and sins, and made us alive in Him. Therefore, He says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Walk worthy of your calling. The work and the gifts of Jesus and what he has done for us calls us to a different course than the world, a distinctly different course to walk. We, as God's people, because of his calling on our lives, are called to walk away from the world. We are not called to walk toward the world or parallel with the world, but we are called to walk away. Uh, Because of God's work for us, we are called to a walk that clearly exemplifies Jesus. Verse 2 brings out some qualities of one who walks worthy of the calling. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearance in love. Lowliness and meekness would give us the thought of, <clears throat> of humility. Not seeing ourselves at the center, but rather Christ being our focus. We need to walk with a focus on Christ. Long-suffering and forbearance, um, I just I kind of put those under the category of Uh, Patience and support in our relation with others. And uh, maybe especially patience in minor grievances, things that sometimes we blow out of proportion. And then uh, at the end of the verse there comes the word love. That I think probably not just forbearing, but also the long-suffering, the lowliness, the meekness, in love, one for another. All of these qualities are necessary for unity. Verse 3 calls us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Chapter 2 talked about The Jews and the Gentiles being brought together in one, and we know that the the Jews and the Gentiles were not, well, they didn't um, function together, at least not well. There there was a difference between Jew and Gentile, uh, maybe especially in the Jews' minds, but Christ in his sacrifice, brought Jew and Gentile together as one. And that uh, was a part of God's plan in sending Jesus to bring together. The word unity, um, kind of my own, actually it might have been, Uh, In a Power Bible uh, definition here, I'm not sure, but the word oneness uh, to me defines unity. Oneness or, yeah, another word that was there, both of these were on Power Bible, unanimity. uh, One or unanimous. And we recognize as people we are all individual people. But unity brings us together as one. Another word, the word harmony, comes to my mind, where um, in, in singing, uh, we sing four-part harmony, and the four parts are distinctly different, and yet they come together as one. Unity here, it says, it calls it the unity of the Spirit, a oneness and affection that comes with the Holy Spirit. We all come from families, and we enjoy, I hope, enjoy being with our families. Um, And I I think, I trust we enjoy being with our families right now, that present, but we also think of extended families. And we, we, there's an affection that we have. Why? Because we're family. Um, there, there's just a bond that's there because, because of our um, who we are. We identify with each other. Here the unity, he says, is of the Spirit. Now if you note, it says to keep the unity of the Spirit. Keep the unity of the Spirit. He's not asking us to to build up the unity of the Spirit but to keep it and indicating here that through the Spirit we are given unity and As I was thinking of that, when a person comes to Christ, they want to identify with God's people. That's a part of that unity that comes through the Spirit. What he's saying here is we need to keep, or could we say, guard our unity. The word endeavor there, endeavor to keep the unity, would denote a conscious effort to keep or to guard the unity endeavoring means that we are working for something we are putting forth effort we need to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit i have 3 things down here and you could probably uh, i'm sure it's you could go further with it but One, because we all come with differences. So we come first with unity in Christ, but we find our differences as we relate to one another. And unfortunately, with our differences at times, we magnify them. Another reason we need to endeavor is because we all struggle with verse 2, with lowliness and meekness long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And one more reason that I have here that we need to endeavor to keep the unity is because Satan hates unity in Christ. Satan hates to see a unified brotherhood. Endeavor to keep the unity in the bond of peace. Verse 4 begins a series of ones. And um, if you are interested in the number, um, there are seven ones. Matt, I lost my paper. What's the number seven? Seven. Okay. Okay. Number of perfection or completeness. So it kind of, I took interest in that, the fact that there are seven ones here. One Lord, he begins. I'm sorry. One body, verse four. One body. When Jesus returns, he is coming for one bride. He is not coming for many brides. He's coming for one bride. John chapter 17. Uh, I'd like to read a few verses there out of the High Priestly Prayer, where Christ is praying for unity, for oneness. John 17, verse 11 says, Jesus speaking, Jesus praying to his Father, says, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Then we're going to jump over to verse 21. 23, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus is praying fervently to the Father here for a oneness. It's not just one time that he states this in his passage. And he says... That they may be one in us, one, unified, in God the Father and God the Son. And then it says that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The oneness of the body is a testimony of Christ to the world. This morning, I cannot explain the many different denominations and the many different factions of Christianity throughout the world. I'm not here to try to explain that. I do um, believe that as, as um, Christians, even with differences, that we can find common ground with with any true christian common ground in christ but what i do know and believe firmly believe here is that god calls his bride to oneness and in that he calls the local church to a bonded oneness a bonded unity one body The next one is one spirit, also in verse 4. There is one spirit, and we receive unity in the Holy Spirit, as I mentioned before. Man struggles with unity as the bride of Christ, but the Holy Spirit is the one who gives the gift of unity. And the, the question I ask is, as we face differences, are we sure to be listening to the one spirit? The next one is one hope. <coughs> one hope of your calling, it says. We have a hope to look forward to in the future, the hope of eternity and In the first chapter of Ephesians, here, verse 13 says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. Sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the earnest of the expectation or the hope of eternity with God. A united hope. Next is one Lord. Our profession and life with Christ as Lord of our lives is foundational in the Christian life. One Lord. Next is one faith. Again foundational. A united faith in the person of Jesus Christ. One baptism, you know there's various modes of baptism and some people may go at length to discuss um, which is right and which is best, but here he says one baptism. Baptism is a sign of a cleansed heart and it's also a commitment to following Jesus with his bride. Baptism brings us in together with the bride of Christ. And the seventh, one God and Father of all. And just might make note here that uh, throughout these ones here is a oneness in the triune God. God over all and God through and in his people. And this is where the spirit of unity can dwell. Moving on here, verse 7. Christ has measured and continues to measure his grace to his people. And in the next couple verses, I, I don't uh, fully understand. He's talking about ascending on high, leading captivity captive, um, giving gifts to men. And then 9 and 10 kind of goes further in there. Christ ascending, descended first into the lower parts of the earth, Um he that ascended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. We notice that Christ is ascended. And back in verse 8, he led captivity captive. And there again, there's differences on what is actually understood with all of that. But we see Christ as the victor, being ascended as victor. And in his death and resurrection... For man, we find him victorious. And he has given grace, the gift of Christ, to all men. And thinking of that grace, the gift to all men, um, verse 11 brings out uh, a few of um, those giftings are, yeah, that he has given to man to further the work of his kingdom, uh, to some apostles, to some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers." And I would see the first two of these as probably relating uh, most specifically to the the, um, times when Paul was writing here, the New and the Old Testament. Uh, I know there are some um, explanations for um, a current look at apostles and prophets. Uh, Apostles would have been New Testament witnesses of Christ who were then sent forth with the gospel. Um, The prophets, vines would say a proclaimer of a divine message. And we think of a prophet as foretelling. And those prophets, Likely referring to the Old Testament prophets, but could have come into the New Testament as well. Then the next one, evangelist, again from Vines, a messenger of good, a messenger carrying the gospel. And then pastors and teachers would be shepherds and teachers of the truth. And um, the last three I would see as carrying over to, to our time now. But he gives, as he goes on, the purpose for these gifts that he has given to man. The purpose, verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints. And I'm just going to pause to note something that in some translations, the comma after saints is not there. And I like that. So we're going to take the the comma out there. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. As, As a leader, and looking at the calling and the purpose of leadership, it's humbling and it makes me feel small and needy for the perfecting of the saints. It's a nurturing to equip the members to nurture or serving to encourage, to encourage service, to, to bring growth that there might be that there might be um, a work of ministry within and among the members. <clears throat> and all that, in the end of the verse, to edify the body. Brothers and sisters, the call, the responsibility is to each one of us to edify, to build up, to minister to one another Think about your place in edifying the body of Christ. Are you life-giving or are you a drain on the body? Let's endeavor to be life-giving, to be encouraging, to be a blessing to the body of Christ. And as we think of that call for each one of us, to build up one another in the church. Again, I say the purpose. Verse 13. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We are called to build one another up, to help each other grow, to bring each other to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, maturity in the church body. As we mature, we are prepared to sort out the winds of doctrine. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Winds of doctrine. The end of the verse speaks of deceit. We could put in false doctrine here, I think would would fit this. You know, there are many winds of doctrine that contain some truth to them. But is the truth in context? Is it looking at other truths as well? Is it overlooking other truth? If we leave one ditch, and you know, I, I think we 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 do face ditches, I think, just to be honest. We face ditches in our circles. But if we leave one ditch, are we simply moving into another ditch? We as a body, as a brotherhood, need unity, need one another to work together, to be able to sort through the deceptions of the winds of doctrine that we face. And we are in a time in a day when there are many winds of doctrine and they are communicated in various ways and they are are very available, thinking of in our age of technology, and are we looking to the right source? First of all, to God's word and the counsel of the brotherhood, the brotherhood, as we Seek to sort out the winds of doctrine. So verse 14 looks at, we could say, false doctrine, the winds of doctrine, uh, deceit, cunning craftiness. And in contrast to that, we are called to speak the truth in love. Verse 15, truth contrasts false doctrine. We are called to speak the truth in love. You know, as we face um, dangers and false doctrine, sometimes it's a challenge to address things in love. Maybe we've thought about it too long, um, haven't prayed about it enough. But harshly speaking the truth is detrimental to unity. Or vehemently standing for the truth is generally not perceived as loving. Carefully and lovingly sharing the truth is often well received by a sincere heart. <clears throat> Maintaining the truth in love edifies the body. The body that has Christ as its head, and verse sixteen uh, brings out there um, the body. So it says it ends up in verse fifteen uh, about growing up in in Him, in all things which is the head, even Christ. Christ is the head of the body, and it talks in verse fifteen, verse sixteen about the body being fitly and firmly joined together. And I talked about a, a, the physical body being one. And you could liken that to unity. And as I think of, of my body, or any body really, we have a forearm and we have an upper arm. And that forearm and upper arm are connected by a joint, Now, sometimes people may have joints that are weak, Uh, maybe there's pain in the joint, and it's, they can't get as much done as if they have a good, strong joint. So physical joints bring separate parts together, and a body that is joined well together can be very effective. You know, your, your hand can lift a lot of weight. It can get a lot of work done if your elbow joint is working well, as well as the other joints. There's many joints. And as I think of working together in the church, you know, you may be a forearm, you may be an upper arm, but you need we need to be joined together with good, solid joints. The Holy Spirit um, Empowering us with that unity and that ability to work together. <coughs> in the physical body, and this is going um, it's just absolutely amazing, but in the physical body, we do not even lift a finger <coughs> without an order from the head. And, and so often we don't even think about it. Um, you know, you lift your hand and you don't think about it, that there was an order coming from the head to lift my hand or to, to walk, um, to, to do whatever you do. But what about in the spiritual body? Where do our orders come from? They must come from Christ for the body to function well. They must come from our head, Jesus, and not from human reasoning and what we simply think makes sense, or is the best. Unity comes from God. It's not something that we can make happen. It comes from God. It's something for us to keep, to protect. The biggest detriment to unity is myself. What if every person in our congregation would look around and say, What can I give to this group? How can I serve the body the most effectively? How would that affect our unity? Where are you personally in unity with the Brotherhood? Do you feel at one and desire the best for each one of the local body? Or what could you do to benefit the unity in the church? question was raised, or the thought was given, about us glorifying God and how small we feel in doing that. Unity in the church is an aspect of God showing his glory through his people. As his people in humility exalt God, as we show patience in forbearance and longsuffering, and as we love as Christ loved. When people see a body of people harmoniously working together, they see a wonder that's beyond man. They see something that only can happen through the work of God. This morning I trust that it is, I know, it's each one of our desire to work to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's something that each one of us desires, and I believe that we will do we will be committed to unity within the brotherhood and brothers and sisters my desire is that as we work together as a brotherhood that we would be a clear portrayal that we could be a blessing to the world around and not taking the glory to ourselves. There is no glory for ourselves, but for God in in a body that is working together. Let's kneel together.